Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Ian Wollstenholm. Um, Ian, here's a little bio from his website. Ian is an ordinary man who randomly awakened to the realized space in 1969. The assimilation of this process continues to this day. Ian was not transformed into a god or bestowed with remarkable powers. Oh, shucks. It would have been a more interesting, <laughs> more interesting interview if you had. Um, his consciousness was expanded to include the viewpoint from which the human condition could be examined and revealed to be as it is. Ian came to see the extent of our conditioning and the way in which this set of meanings govern life as it is lived. The massive false interpretations continue to be implanted as beliefs into the personalities of every being alive today. Realized space is freedom from belief and meaning and provides a mature acceptance of what is. This is not an easy place to live. Okay, so this, that's what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Ian. Thank you very much, Rick. Yeah. Um, would it be uh, appropriate to start with this awakening that occurred to you in 1969, or is there anything prior to that you'd like to discuss? I'm happy to, yeah, to start around that time, definitely, because it, it, it's significant in my in my story. Mm-hmm. And I think prior prior to that, there were one or two incidents with my girlfriend at the time, who was prompting me to be different in, in, a, really, in a really good way, oh, not, okay. not in a bad way, but in, right. a, in a really good way, because she was aware of my unconsciousness mm-hmm. in, in a way that I wasn't, and so she was nudging me in several directions, and the f- one significant one which I have spoken about or written about was when she was reading a Samuel Beckett play to me and it was Happy Days and it was about unconsciousness really and I really connected with the fact that this story was about me and that I didn't know how to show up how to be and I was more and more scared by that and I was hiding, I hid under the covers, I hid under the duvet, and she continued to read the story. And You literally you know, hid under the duvet? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just felt, in a way, I felt so inadequate, hmm. because I could see she was asking something of me that I had no idea how to give. Mm-hmm. And so there were a few priors to that Saturday night, and they all came from my relationship with with my girlfriend at that time. Hmm. So and it's, then, it's as though the chick were starting to peck at the egg, you know, uh, attempting to yeah. break out. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still had no idea about enlightenment or awareness or consciousness. You know, I was working for a design consultancy, doing corporate design, and. I mean, I was leaning towards being a bit of a hippie, but I had no real experience of consciousness. You were like in your early 20s at this time? Yeah, yeah, in my mid-20s. Okay. And then the, the, the spectacular event, we went, I was living in London, close to a place called Hampstead Heath. It's a big open park and 
often we'd go up there if it was a nice evening and spend the evening sitting up on on the parkland, play some music. People would gather. It was like you know the end of the sixties, mm-hmm. and that night. I don't really remember, probably in the early hours of the morning, something happened to me. Like, and my description now obviously comes from this point in time because I see so many things now about what happened. But the gods, chariots, bearded men, angels all appeared in the sky and they were talking to me and communicating to me. Now, I've, I've heard you mention this on several interviews. I want to really delve into it for a few minutes, but I have to ask: yeah. Were you on any sort of drug? Well, not a not ma- marijuana or anything. No, there was a little bit going around, but it wasn't. You know, it was like this only happened to me. It didn't happen to anybody else. No, but I mean, if you had dropped acid the or something, then chances are you could have had an experience like that, which others wouldn't have oh, yeah. had. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 But you hadn't done that. No. No, no, not to that, not to that extent. <laughs> okay. And and so I I was just in awe of what was happening, and yet at the same time I could see that it wasn't happening as well. Right. They were appearing, and yet a, 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 a sort of a, a double take in me could see that actually nothing was in the sky other than the clouds and the moon. Right, it was like a facade that you could, uh, opaque, you know, translucent well, uh, sort of thing. No, I mean, it, it was it was very vivid. I mean, that was the extraordinary thing. It was like, it was, in a way, I could say it was two views. Now, now that I am, you know, with my development since then, I would say it's probably two views. I would say that, and what I've seen after the event is that those images already existed in me. They were the images that my conditioning and my education had put inside of my religious box or my religious folder, and the experience projected them outside. So you don't think there were any actual entities there, such you know no. angels or anything else? This was all just a fabrication of your con- your own consciousness. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And and this I've seen in recent years, and. I mean, when you look at stories of the Virgin Mary coming to visit Catholic girls on their bed, this would be exactly the same experience. Mm-hmm. The experience is real, the, ex- the consciousness expansion is real, it really happened, but the imagery was particular to me. It was my conditioning. Yeah. Although, you know, I've interviewed several people who had had who had experiences with Ramana Maharshi coming to them, like Pamela Wilson, for instance. Uh, she was sitting on her bed, she's a young girl, and, and she had sort of implored the powers that be to show her the truth, you know. And then she woke up in the middle of the night, and there's this Indian guy sitting on her bed. And she had no knowledge of Ramana Maharshi. It wasn't until some years later that she saw his picture on a book. So... Um, you know, was that a fabrication of Pamela's consciousness, <laughs> or, or do we actually have sort of these disembodied yeah. entities going around and you know intervening in our affairs? Well, I I haven't talked to Pamela about it, <laughs> and so I really don't know. But I mean, in, in principle, would you sort of say that there there could be these other realms where there are sort of uh, subtler 
intelligences that could somehow, uh, you know, engage in human affairs in in order to facilitate some sort of change or awakening or something. I can't rule them out. I can't rule them out. But I think that they're a lot more fanciful than what I saw actually happened in me. Right. But it's, it's, it's indicative, it's really indicative of the fact that an awakening took place, mm-hmm. what, however we describe it. And my attempts to describe it have been li- using as little spiritual jargon as possible. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason that has grown up is that I had no master, I had no teacher, I had no tradition, and so I could see what happened to me, and I saw the expansion that happened within me, moving from something like tunnel vision to 360 degree visibility, and I could see that that had happened, but I didn't know what it meant. When you say 360, um, there have been people who have had literally 360 degree vision where they can see what's behind them and in every direction. Is that what you're saying? That there's not only in terms I've, of sort of unbounded awareness, but actually specific perception in all directions. It feels like I still, to this day, to this moment, have perception in all directions, but it isn't necessarily sight. You know, my sight is limited to the physical eyes. Right. But, but, consciousness appears to be a sphere around me and I don't know where the edge is Mm -hmm. and so when you had this experience um, in 69 this was obviously a watershed moment it was a night and day difference and from what I understand of reading and listening to you um, you never reverted back to ordinary Ian it was well, that's a, you know, there are two things in there. <laughs> it didn't, it hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So that my plugged inness to consciousness hasn't changed. But what ordinary Ian is, I mean, <laughs> hopefully we're, we're going to explore that because right. it is, you know, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of the experience. Yeah. And so since that moment, but because I had no understanding of what it was or what it meant, I found that I didn't know anybody that I could talk to about the experience and get straightforward recognition or guidance. Did you even know at that time that it had spiritual implications or you just thought something strange had happened and you it took you quite some time to put the you know to figure it out in in one way yes in one way it 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 felt just a perceptive shift Mm -hmm. but of course i mean i did you know very quickly i read and talked to people and came across concepts of enlightenment and and that was the beginning of me shutting down talking about it in a way because everything that I read ruled out the possibility that I might be awake or might be enlightened. Hmm. Why because, is that? Well, everyone talked 
in the masters that I read talked about certain attributes of being being in bliss and not wanting anything, not having any personal preferences, and you know not having a personality. Pretty much everyone that spoke about it ruled me out mm. because from that moment I could see what was going on within. And what was going on is still what's going on today. Yeah, you still have preferences and you still have a personality and, and all that stuff. Yeah, but, but none of that was included in anybody talking about enlightenment or awakened beings at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I pretty much stopped talking about it after you know, a few months because I, people just would glaze over. <laughs> Yeah. Even now, there are people, you know, getting up on podiums and, and talking this way, um, you know, saying, well, there is no person and you don't have any volition and everything just happens automatically and give up the search and, and all this stuff. And one thing I like about your message, as I understand it so far, is that it's, it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. And, you know, the, the, yeah. there is that level of reality that those people are describing, but that's not the whole ball game you know there's there's a whole another uh, <laughs> dimension or multi-dimensions to life and those have to be included in the entire package totally I, yeah absolutely and and it was my it was like an ex, it was like an experiment mm -hmm. you know I had to discover this myself in my own language mm. which I find totally fascinating and brilliant now because I can talk about it in, in a very simple way and I, I find the approach that you were talking about it's, it's interesting in one way you know, it's a game that certain people play with people that come and listen to them you know, it's, it's a game that's looking to have an effect on the person but I find it really annoying I, I, I'm, yeah I agree with you actually um, <laughs> it's it, it's not the full package and there are people who have played that game who have have grown out of it and said well I was so you know immature in my understanding compared to now I mean Jeff Foster is an example he's beginning to talk in a much more holistic way oh great yeah great but the, the most fascinating aspect of it is seeing what remains there's absolutely no doubt although it probably took me 20 years before I was willing to say to myself this couldn't be anything other than samadhi, enlightenment awakening, whatever you want to call it but I find all those words a bit disturbing because they've already got such outrageous meanings pasted onto them mm -hmm. and so, in one way, I just have to say, you know, it was an expansion of consciousness. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's what you're doing is really valuable because I have this feeling that um, even though the ancient Eastern cultures had a pretty thorough understanding of consciousness and all its stages of development and so on, and so many different words for so many different things, kind of like the way the Eskimos have a lot of different words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the other hand, that doesn't translate perfectly into our 
age and culture. And um, we almost need to not reinvent the wheel, but uh, just really take a fresh look at all this stuff and come up with terminology and understanding that is suitable for our day and age uh, and our culture. And um, what else was I going to say? And also to, to get a clear understanding of the, the roadmap, so to speak, because there's a lot of terms that are thrown around like awakening and enlightenment, and they're very imprecise. You know, We don't know exactly what people are referring to, and are, are there stages of awakening, or is it an on-off, black-white kind of thing, and all that needs to be fleshed out, I think. Yeah, and, and, and also that is the most difficult thing to do, because how do I language it? How do I language it? I don't know. What you know, what is different about me compared to my friends? And and that is also incredibly difficult to you know, identify the difference. Right. I mean the the clearest difference that I see is that I don't suffer. Mm-hmm. I feel pain, I get hurt, I get emotionally hurt, but I don't suffer. There's, how, there's, how would you define suffering and why don't you suffer? Well, for me, suffering is that the processing within us keeps the story going. Mm-hmm. So if, if, I, if somebody hurts me emotionally, I feel the pain, and then the pain goes. Right. Ouch, pain goes. The story, it doesn't develop into a story. And, and you, for don't, me, you, you don't dwell on it for weeks on end or something. It's, no. Yeah, it's like Eckhart Tolle tells the story about the ducks having a little fight on the pond, and after a few moments, the duck just sort of shakes off the, shakes its feathers, and then they just go about being ducks again. <laughs> yeah, Fight, yeah. Fight's over with. Yeah, in one way, it's like that, but it's 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 to be more precise, it's rather like my consciousness takes a pause. Pause, 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 pause. And there isn't the continuity as there is in the isn't in the personality. Um, explain that a little bit more. It's not totally clear to me that what yeah. you're saying. It trying to describe something like this is, is really difficult because it's like my perception of my feeling it's like an on-off situation. Like I'm, I'm, I'm tasting you now, and I'm tasting you again, and I'm tasting you again, tasting you again, not referring to the last taste. I see, I see. This is uh, what it looks like. And so it's like, do, 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 rather than, and uh, I mean, and this is a fantastic identifier, which we'll probably, probably get to in a while, Telling the difference between being the seer, if that term fits, being the part, being the the function in you that sees what's happening when it's happening. The quality of the seer is like that. It's just, it's not keeping the story going. Whereas the personality, the story is a continuum. So everybody talks about living in the now, you know, that's all the rage. And and what you're actually describing, I think, is a very kind of clear explanation of 
you know, practical example of what that might mean. And yeah. Each moment is fresh, doesn't uh, reference the previous moment. It's a, it's a fresh interpretation each each moment. Yeah, yeah. It's like a little, it's like a little taste. Now, now. Now, some okay. things must linger. I mean, let's say, or maybe oh, yeah. they, maybe they linger for a while, but not so long, huh? Yeah, yeah. No. Everything in the personality lingers. Well, let's say your partner gets upset with you, and and you feel upset. I mean, you're not going to be sort of over it in one second, are you? It might take a little while, but maybe not as long as it would have taken previously. Yeah, I agree. But, I mean, to fully understand that, we need to look at the way I've been developing kind of self-inquiry, is that the personality contains the the human condition and if my part if Anna hurts me or does something and I feel pain from it a part or a facet of my personality is brought into life and and the hurt and the pain takes place in that behavioral cell and yes it doesn't just go away it's it, once the cell has been activated it's got a life and, and, and it has to play out its life and that happens inside of me but I wouldn't say that it like it, it, I see it my awareness my seer sees that this is happening and this is a really amazing thing that I've been working with is that the seer can speak or the personality facet can speak mm. and if I speak from the seer I can say to Anna ouch that just hurt and oh this feels like it could take a couple of hours to process so it's not a good idea to talk anymore because <laughs> You know, I'm susceptible to the part actually speaking through my mouth. So, in other words, there's we could say a detachment or a witnessing quality, which gives you some some freedom or some discrimination, not to be kind of just blindly controlled by you know that that little part that has been hurt. Yeah, but unfortunately, you're using the language that. Yeah. But I've chucked out right. because. But that's what they were referring to. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. You've no. probably come up with better language. Well, no, it's brilliant that you're doing this because it gives me the opportunity, you know, to examine it in the detail that mm -hmm. I I have, you know, right. and it is the the idea of the witness is a poor description of it for me because the seer is actually participating. Whereas the idea of a witness isn't participating, you know, the 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 action of the seer, the awareness of the seer, has an influence. Whereas the idea of witness, there would be no influence. Or the watcher, you know, you're watching TV, you can't do anything about the story on the TV. <laughs> but the seer is an active participation in the life of Ian. 
Now, are there several components in there? Is there the seer, which is the active participant, and is there an even sort of more silent level that is not an active participant, and, and the, the active aspect of the seer sort of is an intermediary between that, you know, really silence, deep silence, and the, you know, situation at hand? Would that be true to say? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 would, I would say that the silence exists in, in the life force, and as the life force comes into the human condition, this particular creature, that's the first process, the first function that's activated is the seer. Mm -hmm. So you could almost say behind the seer, although again that's questionable, behind the seer is the silence. Yeah, as, as if there were sort of strata uh, or degrees of manifestation or expression or something, and, and none of them negates or usurps the others. Each, each has their function on their respective level, or non-function as the case may be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah but, what you, but most people are probably kind of locked into the most superficial level and completely at the mercy of you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune getting knocked about this way and that. And what you're saying is that a sort of a deeper dimension dawned in you back in 69 has been maturing ever since, and it, it gives you a, a, a con you, would we say a control or a, 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 a lack of um, compulsiveness in your, in your life? Yes. Okay. Yes. But, but, but the, the idea of mature is, is, is again, fascinating. Because the seer is prior to meaning. The seer has no knowledge and no meaning. And so it was like the seer had to build something in the personality, in the human condition, that could be relied on. And in, in a way you could call that maturity. So taking it from the infancy, you know, which we don't know anything, obviously we've gained all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of skills and, and pa you know, patterns, which I suppose could be uh, conditioning and confining, but are in, at the same time uh, essential in order to function in the world. Yeah, but it's definitely conditioning. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and No, go ahead, I'm sorry. It's, it's, no, it's just... What remains? What remains? And I mean, we probably need to start with the with self, because this this was, you know, this was the hot potato in my own experience. Is that? I mean, people talk about there being no self after awakening, and I would say that that's probably true. But by inference, they're saying, well, I've got no self, you must have self. You know, that's your problem. But in my exploration, in my seeing, there isn't a self in, in, in life. There's the idea of self. There's the belief that there's a self, just like there's a belief that there's an ego, what is self? It, it doesn't exist. 
So there's no little kernel that you can find somewhere deep within that is a little nugget that, that is yourself. That's what exactly. you're saying. Yeah. Are you, are you yeah. saying that we're like a conglomerate, like a jellyfish, for instance? A jellyfish is actually a colony of all kinds of things that are kind of in a cooperative um, relationship that makes a single jellyfish. And, and like that, we have all these different cells and organs and whatnot, each of which has its own sphere, its own intelligence. And But taken together in a cooperative way, we have a being. But there's nothing in there you could find among all those things that you could say, okay, there's the self. Yeah, yeah. And... It's. I've used the word personality to encompass all of Ian's human activity. It was a reasonable enough word. And for me, the personality is a whole tribe of individual behavioral cells, mm -hmm. just like an Excel spreadsheet. And within each cell is a behavioral script that has directives for every system in our body. And at any one time, one of those cells has got into the director's chair. And our unconsciousness believes that to be you or me and yes it is I'm a whole colony of individuals and each one when it's in the director's chair believes itself to be me and often believes that it, its job is to fix my life and the whole personality is like an autopilot it's a totally beautiful piece of kit it's not m malfunctioning it always comes up with a bit of behavior instantly to meet what's happening in front of it but what it doesn't understand is that that bit of behavior doesn't meet or is unlikely to meet your needs it throws a bit of behavior up boom something it cloned from its parents or the teacher or you know the girl next door and it uses that bit of behavior but it has no idea if that is what is really and truly needed to meet the genuine needs in your case of Rick so what's the solution to that dilemma how, how do we operate such that whatever is running the show does meet our needs yeah that, I mean that's that's what life's about really mm -hmm. learning to do that well recognizing that if I don't do that my personality is going to create the havoc that it creates in most people's lives mm -hmm. but when I meet and ask people what do you want I mean, it's, it's, it's a shocking question to most people because nobody really knows. Nobody's been given the opportunity to say, well, actually, it's important that you have what you want. It's important you get what you need. And it's okay. It's absolutely okay that you might want something. 
Well, most people can articulate all sorts of wants. You know, I want a new house, I want a new partner, I want to do this and that. But I suppose what you're alluding to is something more fundamental. You know, fundamentally, essentially, what do you want? And uh, you know, maybe some people might say love or happiness or good health or or whatever is as fundamental yeah. as, as they can conceive. Yeah, but 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 they're all conceptual answers to the question, mm-hmm. and and the work that I've been doing is that each facet of Rick needs to be asked that question, mm. and the first answers will be like the ones you just gave me. Oh, you know, I want a house or I want an isolate, and much deeper within that part, within that behavioural cell, will be a genuine need of yours. And the genuine needs are covered up by all the strategic behaviour that you've been constructing since you know you were able to come up with decent bits of behaviour to pretend you're not actually trying to get something that you need. So don't let me take you off the track here, but are you saying that um, you know all these different components of the personality each each has its own wants and needs, uh, but that the more fundamental we go, the more they converge into kind of a core uh, more essential um, want or need that kind of um, is the fuel for all the rest or that underlies all the rest? Yeah, I would I would stop it before it got to a core because I think they're they're still it's still anarchy inside of us rather than hierarchy. That that the the individual cells in our personality are that they're individual, you know. And again, the idea of integration here doesn't actually map onto it because my parts haven't integrated they're all still independent to a point but they're also cooperative I mean if they're not yeah. you, then if they're not you have cancer you know and, and the, exactly. the, cell, the cells are running amok yeah 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 there's cooperation I so, agree. There's, so there's sort of an organizing intelligence that enables the brain and the liver and the pancreas and the stomach and all these things to kind of work in a symbiotic way and I'm, I'm not sure how that pertains to the point you're trying to make here, but I'm just saying that there seems to be a, oh. a, a greater harmony that that coordinates and harmonizes, a greater intelligence that coordinates and harmonizes all these diverse parts. It's not like anarchistic, as you, you, you said. Yeah, yeah. I would say that there are, there are systems in the body that govern the physical needs, like the heart beating, but the, our behavior, which uses the body, is the cells of behavioral scripts, and the use the use of the body, if if it were allowed just to function, then it would probably take incredibly good care of itself. But it it doesn't really function 
in that way because it's overridden by its use which is how you behave how you act and that's where the, inf the influence comes each individual cell it, it's fascinating to see the cells actually have bodily postures the different cells you know will make you know your partner my partner sees who I am <laughs> very very easily and very quickly because different parts of me ha actually look different and, and, and walk differently and hold their body differently so um, let me clarify my understanding of what you're saying now so when you're saying cells at this point are you talking about physical cells in the body you're talking about the personality components as, yeah, as cells yeah. And, yeah. And, and different personality components depending on which one is predominant are going to make you behave differently walk differently and so on okay. and yeah and they will they will influence the systems that you were talking about that the, the you physical know, systems yeah that run the body sure because they will use it to its own ends mm -hmm. now here's a question for you um, can you know in its natural state the body is very uh, harmonious whole and and you know it's not um, opposed to itself. I mean, in other words, well, even though 90% of the cells in our body are actually microbes that are not human, but <laughs> in any case, it's, exactly. it, it's a yeah. cooperative uh, mechanism, uh, not self-defeating de or self-destructive. And yet, I think, as you were just saying, the, the personality components that accumulate over a lifetime do tend to have that quality. Can we turn that around and say that uh, the personality components can be healed and harmonized such, a, such that they become just as um, benign in their, in their overall functioning as the body itself will be in its natural condition. Yes, I would say that's true. That's true. And is that your uh, goal in working with people to help them achieve that sort of um, harmonious function? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's... I mean, it's like a guidance from my part because it's only worth something to you if you if you are actually discovering it. Right. In other words, it's like you can't just run around saying, "Well, Ian said." It has to be something that you yourself have known experientially. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and that is really the discovery that there is. A layer of management that's required within. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's no, you know, there's no self, and so it makes it a much more difficult situation because the different parts of me want different things. And if there were a self, it would be a lot more straightforward because I could, you know, we could let the self choose. You know, the concept of self would be able to choose between the different parts and say which one's right and which one, you know, is the best for me. But there isn't that function. The different parts are vying to have their way. But perhaps ultimately they have a common purpose and if they can learn to cooperate then they can all be pulling the wagon in the same direction. <laughs> <laughs>
I wish that was so. I mean, I love I love those ideas, but mostly what's discovered is that they're not working for the common good of Rick or whoever it is I'm I'm talking to. What what's mostly uncovered is that you know the parts are often at war with each other. I would say from my own experience that um as the years have rolled by, um, that has become less and less the case. You know, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, 40 years ago, there was a, a much bigger battle going on than there is now if, there, if there's still a battle going on. And I was, yeah. really, I was really doing s- self-destructive things. Uh, you know, now I've kind of, I don't know if it's maturation or, or spiritual, you know, practice, but there, it's a much more harmonious, smooth functioning. Exactly. Yeah, and... and I'm not really saying that to you because clearly you spent your life in this examination also. I mean, yeah. you've been doing it from your point of experience mm-hmm. and you've probably achieved, you know, a pretty decent amount of stillness within. And that's, you know, that's brilliant. That's what the guidance that you can give and I can give can offer to people. Who are, who are really stuck inside with the concepts of you know you've got to be yourself just that very concept you've got to be yourself is almost impossible to explain it to yourself <laughs> yeah and I agree with you about you know not being able to find some core entity that's running the show but on the other hand, you know, just to play devil's advocate on that, there are a couple of things which come to mind. Um, you yeah, know, and reverting back to the, you know, more ancient traditions that we obviously need to put in context. But, um, for instance, the Gita has a verse which says, "Many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute, while the resolute intellect is one-pointed." And then they have this concept of jiva, which is like the the core essence of of your individual being. And that the jiva actually, you know, is the thing which reincarnates from life to life, and so on. But you know, and even though that that is intangible, it's abstract. It's not a physical substance of some kind. Um, there is, I, I believe, some understanding of a, a sort of a core, a governing intelligence that resides in the within our physical, not our physical structure. You know, our our whole, yeah. make, our whole yeah. makeup, and the, yeah. that that governing intelligence can either be neglected, and you know, p- sent to the back seat, and all hell breaks loose, or it can kind of be cultured and serve its role more effectively uh, uh, as a coordinating uh, influence that can make our life more. Like you were saying earlier, you know, there's that witness uh, value, or we didn't we don't we didn't want to use the word witness. But <laughs> there, there's that. Yeah. That value that, that prevents you from flying off the handle if somebody speaks crossly to you or something. There's a, there's yeah. a discrimination that yeah. you know, that enables you to sort of not be in, a slave to your conditioning. I agree. I agree. But it isn't the reality of it doesn't fit its description in in modern spiritual language. It's it's true. I, I recognize what you say within myself. And in a way, there is an automaticness. You know, 
I don't know that I'm choosing anything. I see what happens. And there's, there's a suspicion that I might actually be choosing it, but I honestly don't know. And so you could say there is a kind of self in that context, but it doesn't want anything. That that energetic in me doesn't need anything, doesn't want anything, doesn't have an opinion. It sees it sees what's in Ian and that's the relevant, you know, action or story in front of it. And yes, there's a kind of attitude that is for the good and is going to encourage me to behave for the good. But it isn't anything. You know, my 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 belief and my concept and I was led to believe, you know, I mean one of the funniest things when when I first went to India and I was finishing some therapy that I was having at the time and my therapist said to me you know, be yourself, listen to yourself, trust yourself and I wasn't brave enough to say to her but which of the fucking voices in my head is me? <laughs> yeah, there's this battle for the director's chair going on. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I didn't have the courage to say how can you tell which one's me, the self. Many and branched and endlessly diverse. You know? Exactly, exactly. I mean, in one way, very clearly, I'm saying nothing different here. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I've languaged it from my own direct experience in the late 20th century and early 21st century. I'm saying absolutely that. There's I am constructed out of a host of behavioural cells, many diverse, mm -hmm. but hopefully my languaging of it gives anybody that is looking to make a difference inside of themselves more help in managing and being what they would like to be rather than what their conditioning is making them behave. And how does it do that? How does it help them in managing and, and what you just said? Well, it, it's, it's like you have to begin from nothing. Mm -hmm. And the reason I asked you about what you want is, well, you know, how do you decide? given the possibility, how do you decide? Our conditioning has taught us all sorts of things, but when you disengage from that and you look and see, well, actually there's no right and there's no wrong. And that in itself is totally shocking to discover there's no morality. It all, all morality and all meaning exists in the human condition. And so when you locate as a seer of your experience, there's nothing to go on. How do I choose between that part and that part? And what I see is that if you know what you want, then 
to some extent you can see if that behavior is aligned with what you want and if it isn't then you don't use it so much but just the very question is isn't an easy question and perhaps we can take another step back and say is what you want aligned with if you'll pardon the the expression, the the will of God, or the will of nature, or the <laughs> you, you know the the sort of the cosmic purpose. Um, oh, if, you, if you acknowledge the existence of such a things, such I a don't. Thing. Well, well, let's look at that I'm, for a minute. I'm, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, we have the universe, right? And it's yeah. been going on for 14 billion years, and yeah. it's, it seems to have a uh, an intelligence that that structures it. It's not just random billion billiard balls knocking into each other, creating human beings and Stars. There are laws of nature which govern every phase of life, uh, you know, animate and inanimate, and uh, and it's quite miraculous when you start studying it and, and realize that the sort of the awesome uh, organizing power that seems to be, you know, inherent in, and evident in everything. Um, and we're getting a little abstract and philosophical here, but uh, you know, could we not sort of perhaps? conjecture at least that there's a kind of an evolutionary momentum or direction to the whole thing you know stars form and then stars explode and form heavy elements and there's those eventually form you know our bodies and those bodies acquire greater and greater sophistication and eventually can have a realization such as you had in 1969 or such as you know where consciousness sees itself finally the you know the the, the primal level of reality wakes up to its to itself through this instrumentality so there seems to be this whole kind of orchestra going on which is playing that tune leading in that direction and obviously as individuals there are things we can do which thwart that possibility and there are things we can do which enhance it you know if we drank a pint of whiskey every day chances are that the, the likelihood of such an awakening or the clarity of it is going to be diminished Whereas if we did something that was healthy, maybe meditation or whatever, you know, some exercise even, uh, we might be taking better care of this. And, and do we have a choice, you know, to go this way or that? And, um, and do our choices have consequences? So there's a couple of questions for you. Yeah, I, more, more like 20. <laughs> I know. There is a game <laughs> called <laughs> 20 <laughs> Questions. <laughs> I like it. No, no, I like where you're going with it. Uh -huh. I mean... How it is for me, it's like I don't know that I have any control in this life or of this life, and I have I don't know that I have any control over my consciousness, where it is or goes. But what seems to happen for me is that whatever appears in my consciousness reveals itself to me. And that's an important, uh, you know, an important part of the process in defining it. Can you give us a concrete example of that? Yeah, I'm leading to, I'm leading to a big one. Okay. And I mean, the central theme to what woven through the questions is, is there a God? 
if you want, you know, if we yeah. understand what we mean by that term. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, the evidence is out. I, I, there's no, there's no real evidence for, well, there's, de there's no evidence for a creator. And there appears to be an intelligence. There's the appearance of intelligence that you're talking about. And you may not be able to see the intelligence itself, but you can see its handiwork. Exactly. Oh, it's only seen by, by its handiwork. Right, right. There, there appears to be the intelligence, but my experience of that intelligence that it has no morality it has no nothing that you could take from any of your questions there's no there's no proof and so what happens yes is governed by certain laws that we're able to see but those laws aren't laws of right and wrong or morality or what's best for Ian or what's best for Rick. They are just a numbers game. And so what appears to be my discovery is that there really there's no guidance. There's absolutely no guidance in consciousness for any decision or for any preferred direction and that is quite shocking my experience of these things I can sit here and say them quite simply and easily to you but the appearance of those in my system have been utterly shocking the reverberations of there being no God are so massive because if that is true we have to reorient our existence without all the stories that support choices being made other than by me in my own morality of choice I can't refer to anything other than that. Is this the right choice? Well, the world morality obviously is very heavily laden with, you know, human judgment and oh yeah, yeah. There, there have been all sorts of things throughout history that have been considered moral or immoral that you know, we look upon as ridiculous. I mean, you know, people who thought they were doing the moral thing were torturing people and you know, killing thousands of people and, yeah, and so on. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's, that sort of thing goes on today. The guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center thought probably they were the real moral, righteous people. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a word we probably don't want to use very much <laughs> in a conversation like this. Yeah, uh, but but there's something essential in that word. You know, when you refer back to somewhere, there must be guidance as to how to act or what to do or how to choose. You know, there must be some something that I can refer to that will 
guide me is it right or wrong is this thing right or wrong and my discovery is that there's nothing well let me put it this way um, if we if we accept that there is some sort of intelligence that seems to be governing things we, you know, whatever that may be and if uh, we see its handiwork and its handiwork happens to be the you know evolution of life in great proliferation actually and, and uh, the tendency for life to evolve to you know, more and more complex forms, uh, and you and I are a couple of those forms, uh, yeah. then, then yeah. we can't say, I don't, it's tricky to anthropomorphize it and say, oh, well, you know, you know, attribute human qualities to that intelligence, but there seems to be a, a, a direction or a, or, or a motivation to, you know, rather than have everything just be a primordial soup for all eternity, to, to you know, Evolve into more sophisticated forms, which actually can become self-reflecting, self-aware, and aware not only of individual self, but of that universal intelligence itself, or at least some intimation of it. Um, so where am I going with this thought? So if that is the case, then rather than use the word morality, we could, we could ask whether it might be possible to discern or intuit as we go along which direction in our life is more in harmony with that apparent um, tendency of intelligence to evolve more and more uh, sophisticated forms and more more deeper recognition of itself, or or which direction is going to you know uh, hamper that or conflict with that? So that that would be my understanding of morality, uh, and it, it could even be taken down to simple things. You know, if I am cruel to this person. Uh, aside from the influence it has on them, what's it going to do for me? Is it going to harden my heart, or, or you know, yes, probably it will, and that will be counterproductive to not only my own purpose, but me as that universal intelligence, its purpose. What you say is very genuine and beautiful in in the example, and what I would say is that it's your choice. It's down to you. Uh, yeah, we have it's to abs- well. It's absolutely... Well, it's, you know, that's the only possibility. There's nothing other than you able to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and, I, and if there's a me who's making that choice, whatever that me may be, whether a conglomeration of impulses or you know yeah. some kernel of, of a jiva, then there's probably going to be that that me is going to face is going to reap the consequences of that choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and the more conscious you are, the more you see the implications of your actions and the consequence, the likely consequences. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's no there's no external reference or internal reference. There's and I use the word morality. You know, what else could be used? You know, there's n- there's no true advice on how to behave or how to be. There are lots of stories about Akashic records and so many things, and you know, all the dash stuff. Yeah, yeah. But in in reality, you're it. But there is an internal reference, isn't there? I mean, don't you feel that you have an internal kind of barometer or whatever that um, 
kind of in, an intuitive sense of go this way, not that, or if you, yeah. if you do go this way, oops, I better not go that way in the future. There's, there's sort of a... Yeah, a, but I mean other than you. Oh, right. Other okay. than you. Other yeah. than you. So in other words, you have to be self-referral about it to really yeah. be successful. You can't just be relying on Akashic Records or the Bible or whatever. You might take as an external authority. Absolutely. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So I think we settled that one. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> and uh, and it's really a question of you know what are you including? You know, can you see you know all the processes that are going on in you in order to make those choices or to have those preferences and the traditional descriptions of what goes on inside of us I found to be pretty much useless mm -hmm. and so what what actually you know this keeps coming back to you know what remains and the examination of that and the I mean I don't like the word management but the management of the processing inside you know, that's the work. Yeah. That's the recognition. You know, I will, you know, I'm keen to rehabilitate emotions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have pointed in the other direction and said, you know, emotions aren't you. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, you can ignore them. But I say, you know, they're incredibly valuable in my life. My feelings, my emotions. You know, I'm very happy to have them. They provide the, you know, the, the the color to my experience. Yeah, yeah. I think the people who are saying emotions aren't you, or the the crowd we were speaking about earlier, who glom on to the sort of absolute value to the exclusion of all relative values, and are neglecting the the complete package. And uh, you know, to such people, I say, okay, fine. If there's absolutely no self, then you know, run down to your bank and take out all the money and send it to me because there's nobody on, on, on your end who's going to care. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a better example than mine. My <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's like, when you, when, you, when you allow all the systems inside to be there, that increases your, your work in a way because you have to then pay attention to it everything that's going on in order to steer your ship and, and this is a huge challenge there are so many promises that something will happen and then your life will take care of itself and it isn't like that at all the more aware you are, the more conscious you are the more you see and you have to pay attention to it you have to act now in so many cases that you wouldn't do in a less conscious life. Mm -hmm. I'd say in a way both things are true. You know, there's a bumper sticker here in the States, probably over there too, which is let go and let God, you know. And yeah. um, on, on the one hand, you can think of people who were 
you know, just desperately trying to control their lives and they're make, doing a miserable job of it and, you know, very locked into an individual perspective and nothing more. And life is very difficult and friction full of, you know, roughness and friction and you know, the, the gears are not meshing smoothly. And yeah. on, the other, on the other hand, there's, to take it to the other extreme, there are people who espouse this notion of just absolutely letting go and you don't have any choice and nothing matters and, you know, you're not... In, and I'd say there's a kind of a, a balance between those two where, uh, you know, you can realize that there is a sort of a deeper, larger intelligence that you can kind of attune yourself to and, and to a certain extent trust or maybe to a great extent trust. But on the other hand, you know, there's, to use another God phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And, <laughs> you know, you can do just what you're saying and, and be actively engaged in um, – dealing with emotional things or, you know, whatever other ways in which you can um, enhance the, you know, work out kinks in the, in your personality that are making life difficult. Yeah. I mean, that is a, sort of brings up something that I find quite important and fascinating is that things are so individual. Pardon me? Every, Things are so individual. People are so individual. Right. You know, what what we can communicate together, what I talk to you about and you talk to me about, is very particular or can be very particular. And we're talking with a sense of the other's receptivity and understanding and capacity. And the danger is that we're going to record this and broadcast it <laughs> and lots of people will hear things and go oh I've got to do that yeah and and that's for me needs is worth talking about because what I say and do with individuals can be so radically different mm -hmm. and and what I find myself just saying to one person is totally inappropriate to another person and wouldn't be of any value to, you know, many other people. Mm -hmm. And that, that is the danger of language and of teachings and traditions, is that one of the amazing things that seems to happen when I sit with somebody is that what needs to happen is uncovered what needs to happen for that person is uncovered not by me but within them or within you and and that is an amazing process that that I observe and the danger of of what we talk about is that things that we say will sound like really fantastic advice but it isn't of much value to most people because they will make it mean something that it isn't and then we'll be stuck with trying to achieve it. Yeah. So, and and th for me, the beauty comes from working with individuals mm -hmm. because then we can really get somewhere and keep checking it out. You know, what do you, you know, what did you make that mean? what's actually happening for you. you know, that's such an important part of the kind of communication that we're having. We, 
you know, you're making your questions on those feelings and choices from me, and you're, you know, it's working well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think we're in danger of, I mean, we're not, we're, we're speaking in pretty broad terms here and abstract concepts and so on, so I, I don't know if too many people are going to try to you know, distill a practice from any of this. <laughs> but, but, you know, they could always get in touch with you to work one-on-one if they wanted to. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Sure. Uh, but I, I was, ra- rather than trying to promote me, I was just making the point of how how different what you need is from somebody who appears to be very like you needs. Yeah. You know, that's, the, that's the extraordinary thing. And, you know, spiritual practice, I think in the same way, doesn't meet the individual's needs. It's like you've got to fit yourself up to something rather than whatever it is that you're doing is actually suited to you. Mm-hmm. And Well, I kind of find that in doing these interviews that each person has, you know, there, there are a lot, there's some fundamental similarities, but there have been so many different paths followed, you know, um, either formal or, or totally unexpected like your own uh, yeah, yeah. you really can't sort of lay down any kind of strict formula about this is the way it's got to be and, and, and in saying that you know at the same time I would even say that there have been mass popular public teachings that have been very conducive to some people's development but then maybe yeah. at a certain yeah. point the, the, the mass teaching becomes irrelevant to them or they need they need some more individuated uh, you know attention or something. So it's like anything goes. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's uh, the mascot of Buddha oh, the Gamma. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm walking across my desk here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, is it a boy or a girl? It's a girl, Siamese Himalayan mix. Just just the the loveliness of your cat coming right, right. in saying, you know, that, that makes my heart go a bit off because I've shut my dog out of the room that I'm in. Oh, well, you, you may have seen me opening this door. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I'm letting yeah, the dogs yeah. in and out, actually. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but but do- I can't reach the door, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I, wa- I wanted to show you my little um, Tibetan. We've got a Lazarat, so she's a beautiful little creature, and she's really, you know, important in our life. Yes, absolutely. And... A- so much, you know, so much happens in her that I see happens in me. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of the spiritual teachers, quote unquote, um, you know, they have very human things like this. I mean, Eckhart Tolle has a dog, takes it for a walk in the woods every day. Pamela Wilson has one. Um, there are, you know, Adyashanti loves Christmas and, and built, makes a big elaborate Christmas tree in his house every year. Uh, so, you know, it's like these people sometimes are put on pedestals and yeah, re- regarded yeah. as not having, uh, you know, ordinary personal lives, but pretty much everyone does. Absolutely. No, and that, that's really been one of the most important things for me to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just a guy. I'm just some guy. You know, it, it doesn't give me anything special. It doesn't make me special. You know, I have to live my ordinary life every day. Yep. And just like everybody else. And the experience of 
awakening is probably something a lot more common than we might expect. And like myself, people have ruled out that possibility because they're still they've still got fucked up personalities. Yeah, no, that's a good point. A lot of people feel like, oh, I could never be there because I'm not like so and so who seems to float on a cloud. But if you really then look into the life of so and so, yeah. Performs the same bodily functions as the rest of us, and, and yeah. actually has a number of the same issues with, you know, relationships and this and that. It's, it's just that there's been some kind of a deeper unfoldment that's taken place, uh, as in your own case, you know, that that ex that awakening took place. But it, you're still a normal guy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important, you know, to communicate that. I think it is. Um, I guess could we take it? Would you go so far as to say that probably all these people throughout history who were regarded as almost beyond human? Um, well, it's, it's part of it's the lifestyle. I mean, you have somebody like Neem Karoli Baba or, or Ramana Maharshi, and they they basically just sat around in a loincloth and and saw students, and so yeah. they they seem so different. Um, yeah. But but that's really just a lifestyle consideration, isn't it? I mean. As far as the inner consciousness is concerned, could you possibly be raising a family and, and have the same sort of inner development as somebody who chose the more reclusive lifestyle? I would say definitely. Yeah. You know, what, what we don't know is what was it that happened in Ramana's life that made him go and sit in a godforsaken hole in the ground full of mosquitoes and not dare come out for months? Yeah. You know, that it's, people talk about that as a kind of spiritual experience, but I reckon something really awful happened in his life that you know drove him to that. Well, the story is act. he went into such a deep samadhi that he was oblivious to everything, and he sat there in that state of samadhi while insects bored into his legs, and and you know was unaware of it because he was so deep. Uh, yeah, I I don't believe that story. Could be, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, my experience of of Osho and of Barry Long is that they were just like me. Mm -hmm. They it wasn't their intention to portray that fact. They they actively cultured the image of the yeah, special yeah, guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They they well they kept the fact that yeah, they were just a guy like everybody else out of what they were doing. Yeah, we well, you know the same thing even happens with rock stars. It's almost the same syndrome. Um, you know, Mick Jagger or whoever is really just a guy, but, you know, when he gets up on stage in front of 10,000 people, everybody goes crazy. And, you know, there's this sort of charisma thing that happens and, and, some, and specialness is, um, is, you know... Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean... It, it appears to be a need that we have as well, you know, whether it's our condition need or not, but to make somebody special and to, to imagine that there are sacred beings. And I say, no, there aren't. There are only dysfunctional human beings like you and me. That's all we've got to contend with. Well, there are degrees of dysfunction, but you know, I, I agree with you more than I once would have, um, be, 
just because of my just experience of dealing with various people over the years who you know I once considered almost godly and you know then yeah. realized yeah. that there was definitely a human side to it um, but you know it's like the old paradox thing I would still say that sure we're, we can be special in different ways Yehudi Menuhin is special you know as a violin player yeah. uh, although yeah. he's probably a pretty ordinary guy in in other respects and you know in the spiritual realm there are people who've achieved a degree of development that we might say is special or we might use the word rare or uncommon or or something um, but like you say the the personality has all these cells in it and there there's still going to be some cells that are pretty ordinary yeah absolutely you know I'm capable I'm more than capable of acting in self-interest So our conversation has been a little bit rambling, but I, I think we've been bringing out some really good, you know, themes. Um, are there some areas that are, you know, dear to your heart that we haven't really touched upon yet? Things that you like to talk about, that you teach, that you work with individuals on, whatever. In in a roundabout way, I think we really have covered it because the most important thing for me to be able to say is that inside of you everything that's there can be accepted and in accepting all the different facets of yourself allows those hidden parts of your personality to actually have a right, their rightful place in life and so spiritual work takes place inside of each individual and it's again it's a much more ordinary phenomena it's like rehabilitating the parts of you that are scared to actually come out and say I'm here is there any kind of universal formula for accepting these parts, you know, for facilitating that? The, the universal formula, if it exists, is you saying with to yourself, I accept you. It seems that we have something called intention, and if it's your intention to accept everything that you are, by doing that, you actually bring it about by making it your intention mm -hmm. and by saying inside of yourself, I accept you, I accept every part of me. In a way, uh, you know, you had an advantage in doing that because you had this awakening in 69 and it gave you a foundation for perhaps, you know, being less fearless in, in, in accepting things than somebody who didn't have that foundation. It's kind of like if you had a little bucket of water and you started putting spoons of mud into it, it would become muddy very quickly. But if you did that with an ocean, you would never see the mud accumulate. So, you know, you kind of had an awakening to that oceanhood. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it seems to have given you a, a foundation or a, an advantage. So, I mean, what would you say to people who haven't had such an awakening? 
Yeah, no, that's so true. I mean, and and I have to keep remembering that mm-hmm. because in in one way my life is so straightforward. And what I would say to individuals is that it is possible, you know, if you have a good look at yourself, inside of yourself, you'll see that there is a function that sees what's going on and that function is not the thoughts or the feelings or the emotions or the behavior that you're seeing. It is separate from the content and there are many practices that you can do to make the space inside of yourself to see if that's true. Like there's meditation is a primary one. And if you can discover the distinction between the seer in you and the parts of your personality, that gives you an advantage. And that can be the beginning of you choosing a better life for yourself. I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, there is a certain theme in contemporary spirituality that practices are only going to reinforce the notion of a practicer and therefore you should not engage in them. And so what you seem to be saying is, you know, there are a lot of things you can do. Find something that works for you and uh, it might be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many, there are so many fascinating things in, in what I work with is that, you know, how how do you relocate from one part to another part if that part is actually giving you trouble and I found that there are lots of ancient tricks you know if, if you look at things like hand mudras mm-hmm. you, know, you you probably see you know lots of drawings of different hand mudras and we've been experimenting with with hand mudras as it's part of a my partner's healing practice she does Tibetan pulsing healing and the hand mudras are really great little tools to relocate from a troublesome part of your personality and this was quite an amazing find on our part they really work you know just like if if I'm helping people to relocate from a part that is giving them a lot of trouble and suffering if you can do it physically you can do it by actually going out and doing some physical activity and I I use the the example of me playing table tennis if I go and play table tennis within two minutes the table tennis in me is present the table tennis what? the table tennis the table tennis player in me is present very very quickly mm-hmm. and not the part that was in emotional turmoil right and so it's like making the link between physical activity can relocate you from a part that you don't really want to be in no, that's a good point I mean going out taking a nice walk in the woods or, or whatever exactly or doing yeah. some yoga yeah now, the question is, you know, some people say, well, you shouldn't try to get away from the thing you don't want to be in. You should actually go into it more deeply and directly and, you know, really face it and feel it and ho- hopefully thereby d- dissolve it. Um, what would you say to that? 
Um, I say that's a great recipe for making a lot of money out of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say it's useful to have a you know to have a look at your parts. Yeah, part of the process is having a look at your parts, finding out what they feel like. But once you've done that and you see that that part isn't taking you anywhere, why would you go in it? Yeah. If a part makes you unhappy, why would you why would you choose to go into that part? Because well, it's a, yeah, it certainly isn't the natural tendency of the mind to go towards greater unhappiness. Oh, you know, it it is it's it's a common theory, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you can't clear the behavioral script from within it, from experiencing it. The thing to do is to relocate, is to go into a part that is behaving in the way you would like to behave. I'll tell you one thing that might work, and let's see if you agree, is uh, let's say you have some emotional upset or something, and there, there is a physiological component to that. Let's say there's, and if you, let's say you close your eyes and, and you start to feel your, your body and you notice that, oh, there's this sort of turmoil in my solar plexus or something, and, and you, you let the attention kind of dwell on that, um, my experience is that that, that can help to um, dissolve it, and then you find, oh, well, the emotional turmoil seems to have gone, you know, when I attended to, the phys to its physical counterpart. Okay, so what, what you're saying to me is that by doing what you're doing or sitting how you sit, you're locating as the seer of your experience, and the seer is allowing that part to be there. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. That's Rather what, than trying to deflect your attention and not feel yeah, it, you, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, you allow it to be there. Yeah, you allow it to be there. And when you do that, the feelings process through you. Mm -hmm. What I was saying is that if you let that script run and take you over, not getting to the seer and sit and, and process it, right. if you, if you, if you, the idea of you've got to feel it, you've got to get in there. If, if you let the, the script run and it takes over your body, the process doesn't happen. It just is unnecessary. Mm. And that, that's a clear distinction between the seer allowing the script to run until it stops as opposed to the personality, the, the cell getting into the director's seat and being you for a few hours. Hmm. There are maybe, two different possibilities there. Maybe again it comes back to having the capacity to um, process this stuff, you know, and, and Absolutely. That, that capacity, you know, is greatly um, augmented by more universal awareness, more expanded awareness. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but they're two very different things. Yeah. The, see, the, the seer is acting almost, almost like the seer, the, the seer is in, encompassing the part that's hurt and hurting mm -hmm. and allowing it to be there, mm -hmm. whereas the other one is the part gets control of you. Right, runs the show. Yeah, and it just builds and builds, and that isn't isn't a great experience. I wouldn't advise that to happen. Yeah, no, that's a clear distinction. And um, I mean, and and the second one is what 
generally happens with people. You know, they're they're getting yeah led around by the nose by their parts. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it's painful, and it's suffering. Yeah, and the whole world is more or less operating that way. Yeah. But there does seem to be, you know, to be optimistic, there does seem to be a kind of a general awakening of the kind of thing that we're talking about here uh, in, in terms of people being able to step back and, you know, operate from a, a deeper or broader perspective where they're not so enslaved by their conditioning. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And what you're doing is, you know, really helping communicate that. Trying to, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a very valuable part of the process. You know, you making these interviews and mm -hmm. allowing them to be seen, communicating the new language of what's going on inside of you. Yeah. Well, like the Beatles said, we're all doing what we can, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was from Revolution. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, good. So, this has been a nice conversation. I really enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Very kind of uh, thought-provoking, and I hope I haven't talked too much. Sometimes I get flack for that, but <laughs> somehow you seem like the kind no. of guy that can listen to a long yeah. of, you know, yeah. tra train of logic and then you know, respond to it. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I did notice in some of your interviews how you naturally were, and, and it's, I can absolutely accept you, and it was valuable to, to, you know, because you're making really good points. Try to. Sometimes yeah. I use, make the same points over and over again, and people say, well, you stop using the same analogies, I'm getting sick of them. <laughs> so I have to watch out for that. No, I understand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm capable of that too. Yeah. I kind of forget that you know people are watching the same one every week. <laughs> Good. So uh, let yeah. me uh, let me make some any any final words you'd like to say before we wrap it up. I think you've really helped relanguaging spirituality. I have. Yeah, yeah, by doing what you're doing, oh, you know, okay. because it is, you know, it's a very simple, ordinary way of life yeah and what happens inside of us needs a lot of attention mm -hmm. if we want to have the best life as possible and finding a way to make sense of what goes on inside is really important yeah most important thing in my, in my opinion and, and the whole name of this show, Buddha at the, at the Gas Pump, the implication is, obviously, that, you know, I, I know in, in Europe you call them petrol stations or something. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> we understand. Oh, good, because somebody from Australia yeah. said it sounds like a digestive disorder or something, the gas pump. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the implication is that in this day and age, and perhaps even for all time, but especially in these days, it's becoming more and more common to, you know, be pumping gas or buying vegetables next to a, a quote-unquote Buddha, you know, someone who, or to be that person yourself. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is just that, you know, it's just something that happened inside of this, or outside, wherever it happened, this creature is just some guy, mm -hmm. just an ordinary man. Yeah. And 
together we can bring to light very simple and straightforward things that people can benefit from you know that's the most important thing of you know for me in what you're doing yeah, and again, that was actually one of my motivations in starting to do this because I would meet people who would say, well, I couldn't possibly be anywhere near enlightenment because I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not like so-and-so, you know, who seems to float three feet off the ground. And so I, but I knew very many people uh, who, and more, who I felt had uh, realized the enlightenment to whatever degree. And, and again, the, the enlightenment word is culturally laden, but you know what I mean. And so I thought, well, let's get everybody's stories out there and uh, you know, let people see people just like them, who yeah. are, who have sort of are living in this way, and maybe that will help those people who thought they weren't good enough, or you know, Indian enough, or whatever, yeah. to, to wake up to it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I. <laughs> that's a big part of my motivation too. Yeah, yeah. Great. And All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was just, you know, thank you. It's like um, something quite remarkable happens on Skype. It does, you know, yeah. My, my discovery is that the energetic that is part of me is communicated really well on Skype. You know, it's like the, the feeling component of being with somebody happens on Skype. And, you know, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, distance is really not a, a barrier of any sort in terms of the kind of thing we're doing here, uh, nor is time. I mean, people who are listening to this three years after we've recorded it, it doesn't matter yeah. um, because, you know, that, that which we're kind of referring to and dwelling on and enlivening here is beyond time and distance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's good. Alrighty, so uh, let me make a few re concluding remarks then. Um, I've been speaking with Ian Wollstenholm, and I've very much enjoyed this conversation, Ian. It's you know, thank you. Uh, you know, really delightful. Uh, Ian lives in the UK, but he does talk to people all over the world uh, via Skype, right? And he, yeah, you know, yeah. Some, some sort of counseling or consulting or therapy or whatever you call it. Uh, <laughs> that that sort of thing, helping people to you know, you want to summarize exactly what it is you do. People might like to hear it. In a way, it's guidance. It's guidance in consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's guidance for whoever I'm sitting with to see for themselves, to discover their own inner processes. And you mentioned you do kind of like to do that one on one. Yeah, very much. Yeah, as opposed to yeah. big groups and all. Yeah, yeah, that's very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Good. And um, I guess I, it, you obviously charge a fee for it, but people can see what that is on your website, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will. I'll answer those questions on the website pretty soon. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and but there's there's contact info on the website if people want to get in touch with you. Um, and. Uh, this is this interview with Ian has been one in an ongoing series, as we've been saying. And in case this is the first one of my interviews that you've watched, there are over 150 of them now, and they're all archived on YouTube and also on 
Buddha at the Gas Pump website, which is batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. So if you go there, you'll see them all, and you can watch. There's an index on the right-hand side of all the names of the people. And uh, there's a page where I've been announcing the upcoming interviews. Uh, they're scheduled for quite a few months in advance. There's also a chat group or a discussion group that um, springs up around each interview. People begin discussing the points that were raised in the interview, and sometimes those discussions become very deep and intelligent. Sometimes they get a little frivolous, but <laughs> feel, feel, feel free to participate in that if you like. Um, there is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they uh, feel the move to do so. There's also a link to an audio podcast. So if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast and listen to this while you're commuting or whatever, you can do that. Um, so that's about it. So thank you, Ian, again. And, uh, Brilliant. Yeah, thank thanks, you, Rick. Thank you. And thanks to all those who've been listening or watching. And we'll see you next week. Next week should be Jan Fraser, who lives in, on the east coast of the U.S. and has a very interesting story to tell. Brilliant. Good. Thank you. Thank you.